Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. We're starting at this phase where we deal with the prophets. Not all prophets, but a number of them. And tonight we're going to deal with Isaiah. Now, dealing, I mean, covering Isaiah in two lectures is like um, a spaceship trying to flee from a black hole. Uh, you're going to have to pray for inspiration from the Holy Spirit for us to be able to actually pull it off. I am not so sure we're going to be able to do that. Isaiah is a very important prophet. Actually, every prophet is an important prophet. But Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy... So first of all, Isaiah lived in a very troubled time, as almost all the prophets did. Historical background. The time of Isaiah, the kingdom of David, was split into two kingdoms. So if you... Again, represent in your mind the, the, the promised land as a sock that is um, kind of pointing towards the sea. If this is the Mediterranean Sea, this is the sock doing this, right? And the top portion of that sock, the northern portion, was called the kingdom of Israel. And the southern portion was called the kingdom of Judah. So the kingdom of David was divided into two pieces. And remember what we said, and I'll repeat it a number of times, hopefully a number of you have been with me uh, through this, remember this by now. Hebrews, Israelite, and Jews, not the same thing. Those are not synonymous words, they're very different in scripture, and thinking of them as equal confuses matter. Confuses matter, why? Because Israel are is Jacob, Jacob Israel. Hebrews refer to Eber, a, an ancestor of Abraham. And then Jews specifically refer to the descendants of Judah, the third son of Israel, as well as Benjamin, because it so happened that the tribe of... Every tribe, as they entered the land, was apportioned a piece of it. And it just so happened that the portion that was given to Benjamin had Jerusalem in it. And there was no way that Benjamin could take Jerusalem and say, I'm also part of the kingdom of Israel. So Benjamin got stuck with Judah. So at the time of Isaiah, you have a kingdom in the north, rich, powerful, consisting of ten tribes. And you have a kingdom in the south, consisting of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin with its capital being Jerusalem. 
The capital of the north, northern kingdom, is, be it as it may, the important thing about the kingdom, the northern kingdom, is that they decided that they will not go down south and worship God in his temple in Jerusalem. Rather, they will build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That was the fundamental issue that got the prophets coming after them. They were not reproached that they broke away from a corrupt regime down south. That was never the issue. The issue was that they broke the covenant. Because the covenant stipulated that there's only one place, and one place only where you can adore the, the Lord and offer sacrifices. Meaning there's only one priesthood. One. Down south in the temple of Jerusalem. Doesn't matter how corrupt they are. Doesn't matter whether they're actually pocketing the money from the temple or not. That's irrelevant to the Lord. What is relevant is that they have, every Israelite is supposed to honor the covenant that was ratified with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David. As soon as they broke away from it, the covenant curses were triggered. But God, being a patient God, sent them a set of prophets saying, repent or else. You see, as soon as you break away from the real temple, you are going to mix errors with truth. Because what they ended up doing in Gerizim is they started worshipping other gods. So they ended up with a mixture of stuff. Repent or else. Well, they did not. So Isaiah comes along on the scene where he basically is going to talk to the kingdom of the north right before Assyria comes down and destroys it utterly in such a way that it is not recoverable. And then he's going to turn around and talk to the kingdom of the south before the Babylonian will come and destroy it. But then he's going to look forward towards future generations and he's going to talk to them about the good things that the Lord will do. So the book of Isaiah, consisting of 66 chapters, is really split in two. The first set is called the Book of Damnation. Starting with chapter 1, roughly all the way through chapter 39, roughly. And then the second set starts with chapter 40 and goes all the way to chapter 66 and it's called the Book of Restoration. Now, why is chapter 40 important? Because it starts with the following word. Comfort, comfort my people. Say to Jerusalem, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Do you remember who said those very same words? John the Baptist. When they asked him, who are you? He quoted from the book of Isaiah chapter 40, the beginning of the restoration. Okay. That was momentous. That was extremely important. What we're going to do tonight is cover the book of damnation. We're going to go through and see how the Lord treats the various nations, including Israel, and key in on specific words that show up again in Revelation. And hopefully, after hearing this talk tonight, you can go back and look through the book of Revelation and see how 
similar imagery, similar words are recurring. Along the way, I'm going to point out some important passages that have, have other implications as we go through. So let's try and let's see if we can do that. We're going to go through um, 39 chapters or so tonight. <laughs> Buckle up. All right, chapter one. The vision, the vision, right? That's why it's so key, is because Isaiah has also a series of visions foretelling what is about to come, just as John had a vision, right? So the purpose of those visions is not only for those who live in 21st century America and Russia. The odd thing about those who interpret Revelation only in its futuristic sense, I'm not saying there is no futuristic sense to Revelation, there is because of the third meaning of Scripture. But the odd thing about it is that very few of them will actually go back to the book of, the book of Isaiah and interpret it in the same way. Very few of them will say, oh, well, Isaiah wasn't talking about anything that happened during his time. He's only talking about when the Russians are going to attack the United States or Israel. You don't hear that kind of stuff. You hear it about the, the book of Revelation only. That's why here we're going to maintain a consistent approach to Scripture. Whether it's the book of Revelation, whether it's the book of Isaiah, we apply the four senses of Scripture, and we say that the literal sense had to do with something that Isaiah had in mind for people around him. Right? Why? Because at the end of the day, Isaiah and all those who were with him, with him who are saved are part of the missionary the missionary aspect of the church, the part of the church, and in her missionary zeal, the church continues to announce the good news, forward and backward. It's one church, in time and in space. Alright? The vision which Isaiah had concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So the first chapter is about the southern kingdom. Judah and Jerusalem. If you don't understand the geopolitical situation and the relationship between Judah and Israel, you would just think Judah, oh, of course that means, you know, well, you know, all the Jews and all of Israel. And you would not understand the focus on Jerusalem. Okay? It's very, very specific. Let me show you in another piece we're going to visit why this is important. Turn quickly to the book of Acts, chapter, yeah, chapter 2. This is a very important passage. You've read it, you've heard it read so many times during Mass. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them calling, uh, telling us in our own tongues that the, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. What does this mean? Now notice, Luke, who's writing Acts, 
right? focuses on the universal aspect. All these people from all these countries heard the message. All of them heard the message. All of them are wondering, what does this mean? Right? Now here Peter. Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Addressed them. Men of the world? No. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. He's not talking to the whole world, the Arabs and the Cretes and the Phrygian and the men of Judea and all those who dwell in Jerusalem. That context, the first verse in the, in the book of Isaiah, the book of damnation, is what Peter starts with. He didn't pick it up on randomly. The vision which Isaiah had concerning Judea and Jerusalem. And Peter used the same exact words, Judea and Jerusalem. He's only talking to them. And he's going to quote Amos, and we're going to see Amos chapter 3, and we're going to see when we hit Amos, why is it important, what he has in mind. My, my point here, right now, is that you better key in on those words, because they're very important. They are charged with meaning. They're charged with meaning. Sort of, for instance, today, you've all heard about this controversy over this, uh, this uh, company from the uh, United Arab Emirates who want to run the ports, right? Well, I say United Arab Emirates, and you bring a whole context behind those words, don't you? You immediately know, oh, well, th this was a British company, and now it's sold to this other company. The whole context comes with it, doesn't it? Right? Fast forward 2,000 years. Let's assume 2,000 years from now, there's no more England and there's no more United Arab Emirates. Completely different. And they're studying history and we get to that point. 2,000 years later, how on earth are they going to be able to figure out what the context is? So they read the words and pretty much it means nothing. It looks like a small squabble and it looks stupid. Well, this is a country and that's a country. Well, what was their problem? Why? The words have lost the context, right? And we, especially living here in the United States, we have that problem because we live in a society which is low context, all right? How do we know that? Very easy to make friends. Very easy to unmake friends. You meet somebody and it's like you know them forever. Hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. You start talking about a bunch of stuff. You go to countries where it's high context, good luck. No, no, it's not going to happen like this. It's going to take a long time before you form friendship. But when you form the friendship, it's going to stay for a very long time too. We, we live in a society that is highly mobile. A house is a commodity. We buy it, we sell it, we move. We... In other places, the house is sacred. What do you mean sell the house? It's a big deal. Okay? So you have to learn, you have to understand the historical context, the makeup of the people, the way they think. Without any of that stuff, a lot of this is lost on us. Alright? Huh. I just spent 10 minutes on one verse. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Notice, watch the cosmic, the cosmic perspective. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth. 
whatever happens in the covenant does not concern the people of God only. It concerns the entire cosmos. That's a view that St. Paul will affirm again. For the whole universe is, is, is waiting for salvation. I'm not using the right word, but he conveys that idea. We'll see that when we, hit, when we get to, the new, co to um, the new covenant. Sons have I raised and reared, but they have disowned me. Notice the family language. God does not see Israel as just a nation. These are his sons. These are his daughters. Alright? It's a family affair. This is a father speaking. Here's a father saying, I had kids, I took care of them, and they have disowned me. Alright? The difference, and here you, again, you have to work hard. You have to work hard at bringing the covenant back in picture. Because here, today, well, kids disown their dad. Okay, they leave the house and that's it. They may, get not, they may not get an inheritance and that's the end of it. Right? And the dad moves on and they move on and you have a broken family. So what? Don't bring that context in Scripture. If you do that, Scripture is closed for you. It doesn't work this way. God will never, never, ever disown his own. He will never let go of his own. Alright? His own would wish that he did. Why? Because God will go after them in one of two ways. Blessings or curses. These are the choices. There's nothing in between. You understand? So they would wish that he'd kind of accept their divorce bill. God, we're done with you so long. Thank you very much. It was a really nice ride. But you know what? We're going to be on our own now. That's what they're saying. Correction. That's what we're saying so often. We wish that he'd just leave us alone. But he doesn't. Now ask yourself a simple question. If somebody is after you day and night, if somebody is after you day and night, why would this person be after you day and night? Well, there's two, there's two possible answers, right? Either because he wants something from you, and he needs something, or he loves you. Does God need anything from us? Was God perfectly happy before he created the world? Yeah. He needs nothing of us. So, if he's after us, it's because he loves us. That's how you have to read scripture. Again, I'll repeat it. It is a love letter from a very loving majestic, holy, and just father who will not let go of his children no matter what. No matter what. That is key to understand. So, so this is, you know how sometimes when you're in a bus, if you, if you ever, been, how many of you have been in a bus? Okay. You mean some of you have never been in a bus? <laughs> Wow, that's pretty amazing to me. Wow, so those of you who've been in the bus, you remember when you're standing in a, in it's crowded. What do you do? There's this handle, right? You you hold to it as your life, right? This is your handle. God's love is your handle. So no matter how the bus shakes, no matter how your reading of scripture gets you in areas where you are puzzled, disturbed. 
or difficult areas to understand, you never let go of this one guiding principle. Never. God loves us and he established the church our mother. And our mother tells us the truth all the time. Those are your guiding principles. When you hit a difficulty, it isn't, you never let go of this. You never say, oh, the bus is, is just falling apart because I hit a hole. Right? You say, oh, the road needs fixing, not the bus. Right? Sons have I raised and reared, but they have disowned me. An ox knows its owner and an ass its master's manger. Those images are, again, those symbols are not pulled out of thin air. They're pulled because they mean what they mean. An ox is one that has what? What do you do with an ox? You put a yoke on the, oak, on the ox. And even when you do that, the ox still knows his master. And what about the ass? What do we say about the ass? It's a very, very multifaceted image. Right? And he's saying, even though the ass, who can be rebellious and obstinate, still knows his, his, uh, its master's manger. So the ass is worse than the oak, right? The oak knows the master, but the ass knows the manger. Alright? At least he knows the manger. He doesn't go eating from someone else. He trusts that his master will feed him. Alright? But Israel does not know my people have, has not understood. Israel is worse. Now, Alright, I, I can't do that. I can't go line by line. Otherwise, we'll never get out of this. So, I'm just going to point out to you certain key words here. Verse 7. Your country is a waste. Your cities burnt with fire. Your land before your eyes, strangers devour. A waste like, so like Sodom overthrown. Like Sodom overthrown. The imagery addressed to Judah and Jerusalem is that they are like Sodom. And again, verse 9. We had become as Sodom, we should be like Gomorrah. Alright? Why is, are those important? Because these, these types of images play key role in understanding that famous, wicked city in the book of Revelation. If you ask a majority of, of, of uh, theologians what that city is in the book of Revelation, they will tell you, Rome. They will tell you Rome. And if you go back to the roots of the analysis done, you will see that it relies on Jewish apocalyptic, like the book of Enoch. You see, Jews at the time of Jesus wanted Rome destroyed. Christians wanted Rome converted. All right? And never do the uh, prophets address cities with, ter with these kind of terms, they don't address foreign cities with this type of wording. They only talk about Jerusalem this way. Why? Because Jerusalem is, at that time, where the temple is. And where the temple is, is the presence of God. And God dwells among His people, His children, and His bride. Jerusalem is the bride. Alright? So when we hit the book of Revelation, I hope I won't have to do much convincing to show you that in fact, he's talking about Jerusalem, not about Rome. There's no basis for that in scripture. If you follow a systematic, coherent, cohesive approach to understanding Revelation in light of 
the prophets, and all the other texts we've seen. Again, you will see at verse 21, how has she turned adulterous the faithful city? Alright? How has she turned adulterous the faithful city? Why is that important? Because, again, if we flip over to the book of Revelation, I think if we go to chapter 18, yeah, here we go, chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Alright? The great harlot, who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. That's the beast. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her name a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication, and on her forehead, forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, and the and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, many use that last verse to make a case for Rome. Where Rome had, was, was full of the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But I think I can make a very convincing case that Jerusalem fits this picture much better based on what we have in the Old Testament, on the words of the Lord, on the Acts, and on the words of St. Saint, of Saint Paul, and on some historical background we will see when we get there. That's why I'm honing on those key phrases, because they play a very important role in us understanding what is in St. John, John's mind when we get to these pictures. See, for instance, um, right here, verse 22 in the first chapter, your silver is turned to dross, your wine is mixed with water, your princes are rebels and comrades of thieves. Each one of them loves a bribe and looks for gifts. And again, we have the words of the Lord where he's going to take vengeance against them. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by judgment and her repentant ones by justice. All right? Notice his point is to redeem Zion, not to utterly destroy her, and he will do so by judgment. Okay? Chapter 2, you will see again a reference to that passage in the book of Revelation, verse 19. When men will go into caves in the rocks and into holes in the earth from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty, when He arises to overawe the earth, on that day men will throw to the moles and the bats the idols of silver and gold which they made for worship. They go into caverns in the rocks and we will see the same language in the book of Revelation. And who is he talking about? Verse 1, O house of Jacob. O house of Jacob, that's very specific. In chapter 5, so chapter 3, it can, the same language continues. The same insistence that the day of the Lord is coming. And it is a day of destruction. In chapter 5, he gives the parable of the vineyard. The same parable that Jesus will take again. Take up again, talking about what happened to him and to the vineyard. Remember, the Lord said... I am the vine, you're the branches. Right? My father has a vineyard. This is an image of Jerusalem. Consistently an image of Jerusalem. 
Let me now sing of my friend, my friend's song concerning his vineyard. My friend had a vineyard on a fertile hillside and there's a description it's very similar to what the Lord speaks about. He prepared it, he, he did everything to make it uh, grow. And it said, verse 7, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his cherished plant. Right? So it's both Israel and Judah. Pick up on those words. South and north. All of it. All of the kingdom of David. Now I will let you know what I mean to do to my vineyard. Take away its hedge, give it to grazing, break through its wall, let it be trampled. Yes, I will make it a ruin. A ruin. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts and that is the house of Israel. I told you this. Woe to you who join house to house, who connect field to field, till no room remains, and you are left to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And essentially he's basically telling them that he's going to come down and destroy the land, which is exactly what the Lord said in his own words, speaking about what will this master do. He will come, he will take away the servants, and he will give the vineyard to someone else to till it. Right? And you will see as we will hit the Gospels and we look at the words of the Lord, how the same language is used against Jerusalem. Okay? Chapter 6, the vision of the throne. In chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the throne of God, but he has it from below. John has it from above. Because in the case of John, John is brought up. Isaiah is not. This is a distinct difference between the two. Isaiah has this vision. Ezekiel has this vision. Daniel has this vision. They all have it from below. John has the same vision from above. Old Testament, New Testament. The gates are closed, the gates are open. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high, on a high and lofty throne, with the train of his garment filling the temple. Seraphim were stationed above, each of them had six wings, with two they veiled their faces, with two they veiled their feet, and with two they hovered aloft. Same Seraphim we're going to see with John, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They cried one to the other. All the earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is to me, I am doomed, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among the people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's reaction is, uh, is a natural reaction of every man in the presence of God. We cannot but feel the same. Because God's light shines on us, and when God's light shines with such intensity, we see all our sins and failings. The small ones and the big ones. And they all look really ugly in that light. And then we realize, in contrast, the holiness of God, and we say, Whoa, I am doomed. Right? So if you've ever tempted to ask God to appear to you, think again. Then one of the seraphim flew to me holding an ember which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it. See, he said, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, your sin purged. The seraphim doesn't tell him, Isaiah, my old man, don't exaggerate. You're a good guy. You're fine. You don't have to worry about it. doesn't say that. See? 
Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, your sin purged. What Isaiah said, he didn't say as an exclamation. He wasn't exaggerating. He simply said the truth. Because the light of God shone upon him and he saw himself as he was in God's sight. And God forgave his sins. And notice the liturgy. It's an amber that comes from before the throne. That's why we have incense. Right? That's why we have incense before the altar. This is not something the Catholic Church made up. This is being very biblical. Alright? Hmm. Yeah, now there's a very important passage. Let's see how well I'll do with this. Hmm. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Alright, I'm not going to say that. Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go say to this people, Listen carefully. Listen. I'm not saying that. It's in the text. Okay. Listen carefully, but you shall not understand. Look intently, but you shall know nothing. You are to make the heart of this people sluggish, to dull their ears and close their eyes. Else their eyes will see, their ears hear, their heart understand, and they will turn and be healed. That's what God is saying. Go make their, these people sluggish. So they can't hear, they can't understand, they can't see. And they won't turn to me and they will not be healed. Understand this. The reason why we find this text difficult is because of the Santa Claus syndrome. We think of God as a big Santa. No matter what we do, He will just receive us back and take care of us and pet us and tell us we're just good boys and girls. No. No. God's mercy is infinite. That is true. But the portion He has reserved for each one of us is not infinite. It's finite. The number of times God will forgive us is finite. This is what this text is saying. And eventually, we will run out. And then one of two things can happen. Either we die right away, or worse, we keep on going, and going, and going. And I invite you to read about that in St. Jerome and St. Thomas Aquinas, among others. That, that's why scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because we take God seriously. Until we realize that God is serious about our lives, we're not going to take Him seriously. How long, O Lord, I asked. And He replied, until the cities are desolate, without inhabitants, houses without a man, and the earth is a desolate waste. Earth here is a bad translation as far as I'm concerned. It should have been in the land. God does not have in mind China and Hong Kong and all these other countries. When we read this earth, we say, well, we've never been desolate. Yeah, of course not. He's got in mind the land, not any land, the promised land. Then the text makes sense. Without that, it's just, whoa, the whole earth. Nope. Right? Until the Lord removes men far away and the land is abandoned more and more. In chapter 7, there is a very important sign that God is going to give them. It's to call the version sign. You know that one, right? Where he says, ask of the Lord a sign. 
Because the king is about to trust Egypt, and he's saying, don't trust Egypt, God will take care of you. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to tempt the Lord my God. He's already made up his mind. He's going to trust in politics. Why should I go to church and pray if I'm a Catholic? I'm going to trust in politics. Political forces are going to take care of everything for us. Right. Don't get me wrong. I have a great respect for politics. Politics is extremely important. And we have a duty to be engaged in politics. We cannot poo-poo it. If we do so, we are actually, we are actually showing disrespect to God. Because God expresses His will often through politics. We have to be engaged. Not engaged like as if our life depended on politics, but engage out of respect and love for God. Alright? But understand it's a tool. It's not the end thing, and it's certainly not more powerful than the liturgy. Any one of you who's engaged, any one of us who's engaged more in politics than in the liturgy, we got some work to do. We have some work to do. Can't do that. The liturgy is far more powerful than any political action we can take. Our politics must derive its source and strength from the liturgy. So, anyhow, this king is decided that he's not going to do that, and, and then Isaiah says, O house of David, O house of David, notice, again, house of David, not O whole world, house of David, this is the people of God. Is it not enough for you to weary men, but must you also weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you the sign, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall be living, okay, and then it, it goes on. And then he says, and, and then it follows that he's going to bring men from other countries and destroy you, basically. This is going to come right after. So, that, that prophecy is couched within a whole process through which God will actually bring judgment on these people. And notice, he had told Isaiah to prophesy in such a way that these people will not hear, and indeed they did not hear. You see, one way in which God's wrath is expressed is when people reach a form of final impenitence. Right? When God punishes them and they even refuse to think that God had anything to do with it. And they keep on going their way. It's God's wrath. You understand? Just as God's mercy is the opposite. So, a lot of people get it kind of backward. Right? Because they're, they're, they're failing in their plans. Life is not going the way they want. They're trying to pray the rosary and they can't even get to say it right. They, their, their mind goes all over the place. And they're having really hard time with the liturgy. They're fighting all the time with this. It's not appealing to their senses. Uh, life is not going the way it should. And they feel that they are failing. They feel their life going nowhere. And they're fulfilling the words of the gospel. He who loses his life, he who hates his life for my sake, he who hates his life for my sake, shall gain it. So, these people are being blessed, but they don't see it, because it doesn't look like a blessing. It looks like anything but a blessing. And go back and read the Beatitudes. When you read the back, blessed are the poor, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. But blessing like these needs curses. So we get it backward because we're so worldly. We are so worldly in our affections. We're so attached to the world and its ways 
that it's very hard for us to see the blessing of the curses, right? Just forget it reversed. But those people are being blessed. Essentially, if you're failing in your life, if you have a sense of failure, if things are not going as supposed to go, if you have a sense of emptiness, if you think that you're worth nothing, you're very blessed. Now, you might say, but wait a minute, I might be actually depressed. Yeah, you can tell the difference. If you're going through all of this, yet you're active, you're able to do what you have to do, you're taking care of stuff, you're not depressed. Someone who's depressed will not even be able to button his shirt. He's crying all the time and he's moping around and he's like a snail and he doesn't do anything. But if you're doing what you have to do, but you have this constant feeling that things are not going where it's supposed to, you say your rosary and it's dry, it's dry like sand, welcome to the monastery. Yeah. As one monk told me one day, yeah, eat your sand. But it's holy sand. Remember that. So chapter, um, that's chapter 6. The same language is also found in chapter 7, which I invite you to read. This is all about, this is all about, this is the version sign, I'm sorry, chapter 7. Chapter 8, it continues, um, where basically uh, God asks Isaiah to take a large cylinder and write on it, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And he did that. And then a, a child was born, and he was named Maher Shalal Hashbad. Why? Because, for before the child knows how to call his father or mother by name, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be carried off by the king of Assyria. So, another important aspect of the prophecies and the apocalyptic language is that God doesn't just use words. He will use things and people to represent something. He does that often. In our own world, he did it with Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, not only did she help the poor, but she in, her, in herself represents something about the poor. Right? She became a symbol. He used John Paul II, who was this kind of elderly man, and he attracted millions of youth to him. So he will use people to speak his language in their body. In their body. And John Paul II understood that very, very well when he kept on going even though he could not speak properly. And it was again a sign to us that God is speaking, we're not hearing clearly. For those who have a biblical ear, you can see God's prophecy happening before your eyes. Chapter 10, likewise. I'm not going to go through it because as I said, I'm already in deep trouble right now. Um, in chapter 13, a couple of images are important which, we are, which are going to reoccur in the book of Revelation. Verse 8, pangs and sorrows take hold of them like a woman in labor, they writhe. Thank you, they writhe. Lo, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and burning anger, to lay waste the land and destroy the sinners within it. This is verse 9. Verse 10, the stars and constellations of the heavens send forth no light. The sun is dark when it rises and the light of the moon does not shine. Remember the symbolism we used. This is not about a physical cosmic manifestation. This is an oracle against Babylon that foretells of the end of the Babylonian kingdom. Right? That's the day of the Lord. The day where the Lord comes and visits an empire through political and military means, where He destroys it to put an end and put an end to it. Okay. 
Verse 16, their infants shall be dashed to pieces in their sight, their houses shall be plundered and their wives ravished. I am stirring up against them the Medes, who think nothing of silver and take no delight in gold. The fruit of the womb shall not, they shall not spare, nor shall they have eyes of pity for children. And Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory and pride of the Chaldeans, shall be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. One of the few places where another city is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. As I told you earlier, those symbols always have multiple meanings. And notice, what, what, do you, what can you notice about Babylon since it was destroyed? Has it ever been rebuilt? Never. People don't make those associations. When God utters a prophecy and says, it will never be rebuilt, guess what? It has never been rebuilt. Every city against which this kind of Woe has been uttered, was never rebuilt. Those are not images. Those are decrees, covenantal decrees against cities. And when they take place, they take place. Again, why would God go so far and so deep against the fruit of the womb, the children, and all that? Because, typically, what ends up happening when a society at large reaches a certain state of final impenitence, where children are taught errors, like, for instance, when we teach children certain wrong aspects about sexuality or morality, and we think we're doing the right thing, and we will not repent from our ways, God decrees that it's best for all to be destroyed than to continue producing people who will be walking towards hell. Remember that. Our mind is dulled. We don't see sin the way God sees sin. And we see the consequences of God's action as being greater than the sin that provoked it. I am, um, a friend of mine told me that in Lebanon there is a nun who God gave her disgrace, or a curse, I don't know, of being able to smell sin. She smells sin. And so... I've been told that there are women who go to visit her and they're dressed and perfumed and this, that. And this poor nun is literally about to faint. She cannot be in their presence. And these are not particularly bad women. Yeah. This is where our problem is. We immediately say, well, why is God doing this? We fear to say, well, how, you know, how did we behave? You know, how, how, how am I doing? Again, chapter 14, another against Babylon, Assyria, and Philistia. In it, there's this kind of language, verse 12, in chapter 14. How have you fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who mowed down the nations? The literal sense is to Babylon. That's the literal sense. The analogical sense is to what? Satan. Satan. Morning star. Right? The, king, the, the king of Babylon called himself the morning star. Okay? So behind every human action, you have also angelic actions. And this text addresses both. You said in your heart, I will scale the heavens. Above the stars of God, I will set up my throne. I will take my seat on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Michael. What does Michael mean? Michael. Who is 
like God. That's the meaning of the name Michael. Who is like God? Who is unto God? Michael. That's his name. Because that's his answer back to Satan. Who is like God? One point. Why do you think he wanted to ascend the mountain and set his kingdom above the recesses and up on the mountain? Why do you think he wanted to do that? What provoked the, the, those sayings stated against the king, the king of Babylon? Think covenantally. Think covenantally. God did something in Genesis against someone who was building something. Why did Nimrod build the Tower of Babel? Why did he want to build this tower? Why? Why did he want to reach the sky? There is a much more practical reason why he did that. What happened before the flood? What was his point? If God does it again, he's not going to get me. Even though God promised he won't do it again. I trust in me. I build me a tower very high. No matter what God does, good luck. I'm up there. That is what he did. That's why Abram pronounced a curse against him. It was covenantally based. You're breaching the covenant. God said he won't do it again. And you're thinking he will. Good luck, my man. That's what he said in more biblical terms, I suppose. All right. Interesting, verse 20. Speaking of him, he says, You will never be one with them in the grave, for you have ruined your land, you have slain your people. Let him not be named forever. Let him not be named forever. This is why there is a thinking that says that people in hell, the damned, lose their names. And that's why, one of the reasons why also the church does not canonize people in hell. Chapter 15, an oracle against Moab. The interesting thing about all these chapters is you see the universal care that God has for all his people. You effectively see the Catholic church profiled in the book of Isaiah. Because God is going after each, every nation, without exception. And in every oracle, an oracle is pronounced, and after that there is mourning over what has been destroyed. Isaiah is never, ever happy when he sees the enemy destroyed. Never. That's what's so remarkable. This is not a patriotic, patriotic text. This is not a text where he rejoices because the enemy was destroyed. Never. He mourns. He mourns. That's very remarkable about Isaiah and, and scripture in general. Chapter 17, Oracle against Damascus. Chapter 18, we return to Israel where it's told that the, 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 the Babylonians are coming. Chapter 19, an oracle against Egypt. Interesting, in verse 16 of that chapter, when the Lord of hosts blesses, blesses it, blessed be my people, Egypt, and the work of my hands, Assyria, and my inheritance, Israel. Why is Israel his inheritance? Because through the genealogy, Israel is his firstborn. So, being the firstborn, he receives his inheritance. Okay? But blessed be my people, Egypt. You see the universal dimension profiled here. It's hidden, but it's there. Chapter 20, ready for this one? In the year the general sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, fought against Ashod and captured it, the Lord gave a warning to Isaiah. Go and take off the sackcloth from your waist and remove the sandals from your feet. 
This he did walking naked and barefoot. Walking naked and barefoot. You think St. Francis invented this? Now, you might, you might think he went there, you know, a day. Walking around naked. Then the Lord said, verse 3, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot for three years. Three years. Just ponder that. Ponder what Isaiah did for God. Ponder his love and affection and fidelity and trust. Walking naked for three years. Doesn't blow your mind away? Pardon? Just among the people. Yeah. Naked. Three years. Three years. But see how, how, how God's signs separate the just from the unjust? Everybody reacts. And either they harden their hearts or they return to their God. Because every sign is covenantal. Every sign will bring with it either, either blessing or curses. Every sign. As a sign and portent against Egypt and Ethiopia. For three years he gave them a sign. This is how patient he is. So shall the king of Assyria lead away captives from Egypt and exiles from Ethiopia, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the shame of Egypt. Why does he do that? So people take him seriously. This guy walked naked three years. Chapter 21, another oracle. I'm not going to go through it because I would like to be, uh, allow you to go, go home. Chapter 22, oracle against the, against the valley of vision, which is Jerusalem. Here there's a really important passage, and I lost my verse numbers. So I'd say around 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 13, 14. I think around verse 15 of chapter 22. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, up go to that official Shebna, master of the palace. Which palace? Jerusalem. He's the master of the palace. What does that mean? He's the prime minister. He ministers to the palace. That's his role. That's a position that David invented. So when he was out to war, he entrusted the palace and his family to one guy, the prime minister. Alright? Who has hewn for himself a sepulcher on a, high, on a height and carved his tomb in the rock? What are you doing here and what people have you here th that here you have hewn for yourself a tomb? The Lord shall hurl you down headlong mortal man he shall grip you firmly and roll you up and toss you like a ball into an open land to perish there you and the chariots you glory in your dis you disgrace to your master's house I will thrust you from your office notice the office I will thrust you from your office the office remains you will leave that office I will trust you from your office and pull you down from your station. On that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and gird him with your sash and give over to him your authority. He shall be a father, a father to their inhabitants, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. He's a father. How do we say father? Another way of saying it? Pope. Pope is father, Papa. Okay? I will place the key of the house of David 
on his shoulder. When he opens, no one shall shut. When he shuts, no one shall open. Okay? So when Jesus told Peter, I will give you what? The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Everyone standing there understood immediately what role Peter was to play. He was prime minister. And he was to be a father to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. We don't make up that word Pope. It's biblically based. You understand? And there is an office. The office stays. One goes, one comes, the office stays. Chapter 23, Oracle against Tyre. Chapter 24, it continues. And in chapter 24, we read, verse 6, Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants pay for their guilt. Therefore they who dwell on earth turn pale, and few men are left. And again, I would be willing to bet that it really is meant here land, not the whole earth. Chapter 27, the image of the rock comes, uh, the image of the sword comes back. On that day, the Lord will punish with his sword that is cruel, great, and strong. Verse 9, this then shall be the expiation of Jacob's guilt. This, the whole fruit of the removal of his sin. He shall pulverize all the stones of the altars like pieces of chalk. No sacred poles or incense altars shall stand. For the fortified city shall be desolate. An abandoned pasture, a forsaken wilderness. When, where calves shall browse and lie, its bows shall be destroyed. Its branches shall wither and be broken off. I'll stop right here. Two important images. Desolate. The same keyword we'll see in Matthew that Jesus uses against the temple and the branches that wither what did Jesus do when he saw the fig tree that didn't give any fruit he cursed it and what happened immediately Matthew tells us the branches withered why did he curse the fig tree because the fig tree is a symbol of Israel during the liturgical year approaching Passover Jews devout Jews would stand under the fig tree reading passages that from the, from, from the Old Testament that, that were applicable to the liturgy. How do we know that? Remember when Jesus and John went and saw um, Nathaniel? Where was Nathaniel? Under a fig tree. What did John tell us he was under the fig tree? Because he felt that he liked figs? No. It was before Passover, Nathaniel was under the fig tree. Right? A lot of Isaiah is in the Gospels. In everything Jesus says and does, it's built in. Not necessarily quoted, but built in. Alright, I think I'm going to stop at chapter 28. Verse 9. To whom would he impart knowledge? To whom would he convey the message? To those just weaned from milk? Those taken from breast? Context? He says, Woe to the majestic garland of drunkard Ephraim. Ephraim, Ephraim, is the name of Israel. Often used as Israel. And so it represents the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. So he's going now after them and he's saying, you're a bunch of drunkards. There's no wisdom among you. Who should I talk to? Who's going to take care of my people? The ones who are just clean from the milk? What am I supposed to do? And he says this, 
To whom would he impart knowledge? To whom would he convey the message? To those just to eat from milk? Those taken from the breast? For he says, this is verse 10. Here the translation says, command on command, command on command, rule on rule, rule on rule, here little, there little. Right? The, the, the Hebrew is, the translation is actually very approximate. In fact, in Hebrew, it is it's actually child babble. Child babble. Means nothing. Alright? So, he adds, Yet, yes, with stammering lips and in a strange language, he will speak to this people. Again, verse 13. So for them the word of the Lord shall be, Command on command, command on command, rule on rule, rule on rule, here little, there little. So that when they walk, they stumble backward, broken instead, and captured. Right? In fact, this applies actually... So no, it's not to the king, northern kingdom, this is the southern kingdom. So in this specific instance, he means Judah. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you arrogant who rule this people in Jerusalem. And the whole point here is that he's going to destroy that and he's going to do it by talking to them in a language they don't understand. Right? They don't understand. Now, this is kind of really interesting because St. Paul in the letter to the Corinthians 14 verse 6 Now brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues how shall I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? What is he talking about? Speaking in tongues How many of you have heard of the charismatic movement? How many of you have heard about the prayer in tongues? Alright, that's what he's talking about to speak in tongues Speaking in tongues doesn't mean speaking in English or Chinese or or French, or Arabic, or that's not what he means. He means speaking in tongues that are not understood by men. So if you've never been to a charismatic uh, liturgy, I recommend you do so. And for not, if nothing else, to get acquainted with that particular charism of the church. And this is a charism of the church. Pardon? Where? Uh, you can call the... Uh, the um, um, diocese, and they should be able to tell you where charismatic masses take place in San Diego. Alright? So, so with yourself, if you in a tongue utter speech that is not intel in intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Therefore, he who speaks in tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Okay? And he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Right? So this is not a, we don't doubt the charism of speaking in tongues. It is a charism, it is a gift of the Spirit to be able to speak in tongues. And St. Paul says, I do it more than all of you. Right? Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's saying that there is a hierarchy. That of prophecy, explaining the word, is more important because it helps others. This is through the gift of charity. Right? It's a charitable act to others. However, speaking in tongues is for yourself. That's what he's saying. It's not a bad thing. Right? 
We don't look down on it. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. But there is a hierarchy. Interestingly. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, be babes in evil, but in thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues, by the lips of foreigners, will I speak to these people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Quoting Isaiah. Okay? When he quotes Isaiah, he's bringing the whole context with him. Who is Isaiah writing to? Jerusalem. Right before what? Right before Babylon came and destroyed it. As soon as he quotes that, all that event comes back. Okay? The whole thing comes back. Not to us, of course. Because, you know, we're Catholics and we don't really, you know, we just go to Mass. But to the Jews, to the Christian, to the Catholic of his time, immediately that context came to mind. Whoa, he's quoting Isaiah. Alright? And he adds, thus, Listen carefully, this is very intriguing. Verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. They are a sign given not for those who believe. They are a sign given for those who do not believe. What well, a sign of what? Well, we go back to Isaiah. For by men of strange tongues shall I speak to this people. What happened when God spoke by, by men of strange tongues to this people? Jerusalem was raised down. Destroyed. Now here's really an interesting little fact. The gifts of tongue was during the time of the prophets, right before the destruction of Jerusalem, 587. We see it in Isaiah, we see it in, in Ezekiel, we see it in many places. Then it goes away. Nobody speaks in tongues. When does it reappear? Pentecost. That was Peter. People speaking in tongues. It just shows up. It stays there till when? Destruction of Jerusalem, 780. Then, it goes away as a charism in the Catholic Church. It goes away. For centuries. No one was speaking in tongues. We always had the gift of miracles. We always had the gift of prophecy. We always had the gift of... You know, all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit were there. The gift of tongue was gone. One doesn't reappear. Hippie time! It starts first outside the church in the Protestant circles. And then in the 60s, after 1968, when Paul Paul VI issued his famous encyclical, Humanae Vitae, the gift of tongues enters the Catholic Church. What a coincidence. I think not. That's why it's showing again. By men of strange tongue shall I speak to these people. Why? Because Catholics aren't getting it. They're not listening. So God is speaking to them in a language they can't understand. Why? Because they have become part of the unbelievers. They have become part of the unbelievers when they refuse to obey the teachings of the church and starts picking and choosing. They've picked their camp. 
Verse 18, your covenant with death shall be cancelled and your pact with the netherworld shall not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes, you shall be trampled down by it. Whenever it passes, it shall take you. Morning after morning it shall pass. By day and by night, terror alone shall convey the message. Now, I'm not saying anything that Our Lady of Fatima didn't tell us. Go back and read that message. That's why the Old Testament is so important for us. It holds the key to the new. Okay. Without it, we can't interpret the new appropriately. Can't separate both. You can't just read the New Testament and think, oh, the old doesn't matter. It's like taking Jesus and cutting him in half. I'm just going to eat the left half, not drop the right half. Doesn't work. So what I'm going to do next time is keep on going through chapter 29 through 40, and the the lecture the. After that, we'll hit uh, chapter 40 and things starts to be a lot more nicer overall. So, in the meantime, I really recommend, if you can, take that book of Isaiah and read through it slowly, thoughtfully, meditate on the passage. Whatever speaks to you, stop, meditate, and try to befriend Isaiah. That would be my most earnest recommendation to you. Try to have devotion to him. Try to develop real, sustained devotion to Isaiah. It's very important that we recognize those people who were loved by God and we pay them the homage that is their due. I will say one thing to you, and is that remember that Isaiah, was it Isaiah? I think it was Isaiah who went up to Mount Carmel. Or was it Elijah? Elijah, maybe. One of the two. Elijah? went up to Mount Carmel, right? And Mount Carmel, so here's another prophet that I'm unfortunately not going to hit on, but Mount Carmel is where, Eli where Elijah went up, and he, uh, yeah, he had, on Mount Carmel, he had devotion to Mary. And Isaiah had also devotion to Mary. Because when he gave that revelation, when he said, a virgin shall conceive, those were not mere words to him. There was a vision. Okay. So, if Mary had devotion towards them, how can we not have devotion to these men and women who loved God so much and did not have the sacraments? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.